0: Hello, and welcome to episode 46, part one of Design Edu Today, the podcast series discussing what is necessary to be a successful designer in a contemporary screen-based interactive world. I am your host, Gary Rosance, assistant professor of graphic design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. In both part one and part two of this episode, we will be discussing the ins and outs of UX and UI boot camps. How boot camps compare to traditional four year graphic design programs, and the similar struggles that both boot camps and traditional design programs face when training emerging designers. Today's guest is Mike Josie. Since 2001, Mike has devoted his career to nurturing and leading design communities. Currently, he serves as partner and community director at Designation, the leading UX and UI design boot camp where he helps prepare students to become conscientious, skilled design leaders of tomorrow. Mike has lectured across the country on community and careers in design at the DSVC National Student Show and Conference, Frontier AIGA Design Educators Conference, The Hike Conference, Design Exchange Boston, Phoenix Design Week, Brooks Institute, and to a host of organizations. He does occasional projects under the name Listening and Speaking. He lives in Chicago and no longer fears snow. All right. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Gary. Thanks for having me today. Great. Um, So before I get started into the questions, uh, do you want to explain just a little bit about designation and... What it is, just kind of set up the context for our conversation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Designation is a UX UI design bootcamp. Uh, we are based in Chicago in the Merchandise Mart, which was at one time the largest building in the world. Uh, we're actually in 1871, which is a pretty famous, uh, I guess, well known startup incubator. Uh, and uh, there's about a thousand startups that are here. That information comes in handy a little bit later. <laughs> Our program is 24 weeks end to end, and that is, I think, if not the largest, one of the, or the longest, if not uh, uh, the longest, one of the longest uh, boot camps, boot camp programs in the world. Um, The first six weeks are the design essentials program, which can be standalone for some people who only want the basics of UX and UI. It's part time and it's virtual about 10 hours a week. After that, if you want to continue into the main part of the program, the 18 weeks of the program, uh, people pick their track, they pick UX or UI, and they move into the virtual phase, which is remote, but it's pretty much full time. Um, After six weeks of the virtual phase, they come to Chicago and start the immersion phase, which is a four-week mock project. They get the brief on day one, and uh, at the end of the four weeks, they present to a panel of guest critics. Then comes six weeks of the client phase in which all designers work with real world clients. That's why we're really happy to be in 1871 because we source those clients from startups here in 1871, from incubators, actually all over the world. We've worked with startups in Brazil and Panama and Hawaii. Um, There are a lot of startups and small product companies and they look for UX work, sometimes that's research, sometimes it's design UI work, sometimes branding. And those are actually two, three-week projects uh, built up over the course of those six weeks. And again, you're split between UX and UI. So UX uh, track folks do a UX project and UI track folks do a UI project. And often we work with clients who actually come back for multiple projects with us, which is really cool. So an older cohort will do some UX research and then they'll pass it off to the next cohort to do UX uh, design. And then the next cohort after that will do UI high-fidelity screens. Um, after the client phase comes the final two weeks of the program, which is the career phase. And that's where designers learn how to create their portfolio. And that's case studies, resumes, cover letters, and everything else. And then after that is four weeks of postgraduate support as they really put their portfolios online and start their job search.
0: Okay. So first thing is personally, I don't like the term bootcamp when it comes to uh to the you know this idea of voluntarily gaining new knowledge um to me it is like it sounds negative uh Mm -hmm. like because literally in the most literal definition army boot camp lasts anywhere from 10 to 16 weeks depending on what you're training for and assumes you know absolutely nothing so based on like the army boot camp context is boot camp even the right word to use for programs like yours and is there a better term to use
1: You know, funny enough, we don't like the term boot camp either. Um, (laughs) And I find it strange to see that word proliferate through culture. Um, You know, people talk about CrossFit boot camp um, Mm -hmm. or those uh, Maury Povich type, you know, my teen is out of control. We better send them to boot camp so that they can be a functional human being. Um, When we started, which was three years ago last week, um, we were just a little bit ahead of the curve in uh, terms of these short-term programs. And I think the idea was at that time, well, they can't be called schools. So we need to find a word that means uh, rapid learning and rapid compounding of skills with much faster working speeds. Um, it probably has to do with the fact that there is no accreditation program for designed boot camps. Mm-hmm. And... To use the same analogy, you know, fitness boot camps are all over the place now and they kind of live and die by the success of their participants, you know, people who finish that program and can report results. So that lack of accreditation means that you have programs that are kind of snake oil salesmen sometimes and they can make pretty insane claims about their placement rate. Um, I think. You know, one of the things that we've been really fortunate to do and worked really hard to do is put a bigger emphasis on the soft skills, not just the hard skills of design and and you know, com- combined with the work that we do with live clients. I think that any program that teaches anything outside the hard skills of design probably doesn't like the word bootcamp either. And they try to explore some alternate words. Uh, We've actually worked really hard to steer clear of those words that are associated with boot camps. Um, And the biggest of that is is student, um, which we just see as a really negative word. Um, You probably will hear me say the word designer a lot when other folks would say the word student. Um, And I'm going to go back and forth as we talk about, you know, traditional university programs versus a program like ours. We find that when we use words like student and teacher, um, and major, you know, UX or UI major, that it reinforces some of the negative behaviors. And I think it causes some regression. I think people, when they're called students, when they've and they're in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s in the program, they tend to regress to some of those, you know, bad behaviors that you see in undergrad. Um, I think we've reached a point in popular culture where... Um, these types of programs are approaching a saturation point, and even non-designers are starting to become aware of design boot camps. And because they refer to them as, you know, with that word boot camp, it sort of feels like a wave that's carried all of us along. You know, we are we are part of that group, um, no matter how much we um, chafe against using that word boot camp. We are part of that group. Um, we do have an ongoing experiment with using other words. Um, I say program a lot, but those are, you know, it's a less tangible word. We've also talked about nouns like immersion or experience. And again, they're, those are, are less tangible than yeah. a word that I think, you know, everybody has sort of collectively decided as bootcamp. So it's really a challenge to use those words around applicants or when we have info nights, for example, when, when I meet somebody on the street and talk about what we do, you know that word boot camp makes a lot of sense to them, but one of these other words maybe sounds a little cultish. You know,
0: no, and universities wrestle with that same problem, but in a with a different set of terms. Um, like for a lot of design programs want to be known as visual communications because mm-hmm. it it says that we do more than just create graphic design, but the common vocabulary out there is graphic design, and when it comes to recruitment. What's visual communication? Yeah. I want to be a graphic designer. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I, so I feel your pain <laughs> just on a, on a different level. Cause I like it, you know, with, with, with naming things, it's better just to run with what's in popular culture, even though it may not be an accurate description. Yeah. <laughs> um, so who do you, okay, and so, again, I, and the student part makes sense, too, because I was literally, as you're saying that, I was like, oh, yeah, I could see somebody who's older not wanting to be called a student because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they're just a learner. They're not a student. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, and they made just look at that as, you know, like, well, I should have already been a student and gotten that over with. Hmm. So. Who do you think the ideal? I'm going to use the term learner. <laughs> so, who do you think the ideal learner for designation and other boot camps is? Would it be someone coming out of high school? Uh, would they do just as well as someone who's already gone to college, who's looking to perhaps change careers?
1: Mm-hmm. We, I think, it's probably no surprise that we found that the very best participants in the program are people with a traditional design background Um, and you know they know so much about the rules of design already that they're able to pick up a whole lot very easily Um, and we find those traditional designers and again those can be people in their 20s we've had people all the way up 25 years into their career Um, uh, one guy was a design uh, director creative director for the girl scouts and disney and mattel and you know he came because He didn't know UX and he wanted to be much more of a full stack designer. So, these traditional designers uh, tend to become standouts in their cohorts and even leaders. And we call them, the term we have for them is career advancers, because they really are pushing an existing design career forward. Um, And they already know how to work hard, and more importantly, they understand that design involves a whole lot of ambiguity. And when you're comfortable understanding that there are no right answers to many questions, and comfortable understanding that you have to work for the answer and you have to weigh the options in front of you and understand what the various objectives and values and um, functions are at stake for that problem, the experience becomes a lot easier. Barring design experience, the next most ideal person is someone with experiences that are pretty translatable to the experience of being at designation. So people who've worked with clients, They've managed teams or budgets. They've been a strategist or a writer or a coder. Uh, Those are really great skills to have. And even people, we get a lot of people, because it's Chicago, who have an improv background, which I find super (laughs) fascinating. And people with significant customer service skills. I mean, people who have been baristas or waiters or bartenders. I mean, having that experience... Actually makes you do really well in the program, especially for UX, because you have to inter- you have to know how to interview people, you have to know how to work with the people around you, and often work on you know a non-existent budget, literally in our case, um, and a compressed timeline, and be really creative with solving problems. These types of people we call career switchers because they're really making a big shift into design, and those are usually people who had an idea that they wanted to be in design even before they started whatever career they got into but for whatever reason never pursued it until now so they're a couple years or many years into a career that never really fulfilled them Um, one of the the things that i really like is that every pretty much every single former teacher somebody who's had teaching experience either in a public school private school here they've done teach for america they've taught english in korea or japan We have a considerable number of those people in every cohort, which I find really, really cool. Um, But almost every single person that has that teaching background has been a strong designer in the program. Um, Going back to the, the sort of switcher experience, one of my favorite examples of that was a designer in the program who taught herself Photoshop when she was 15. And for whatever reason was told, you can't pursue a career in that. And so she went to dental school and she became a dental assistant, I believe, a dental technician. And she kind of woke up one day when she was 27 and said, this is not fulfilling me. I want to go back and I want to become a designer. And the fact that she could make that happen in, you know, six months or less was pretty amazing, I thought. Um, and she's been working at Walmart Global E-commerce for about a year now, and she's making six figures. And I don't know how that relates to her salary as a dental assistant, but it's pretty amazing for your first job out of out of a program like this. So we we really like seeing people who make that big switch into uh, into design. Um, We also have a significant number of people who are zero to two years out of college and maybe they never started a career. Um, These people we find are tougher to motivate because they're sometimes not really sure what they're doing here or what UX or UI (laughs) can do as a profession. I think anybody we've all been there who's been through the experience of trying to start a career from scratch knows how difficult it can be um, and you have to really have a pretty big drive to make sure that happens for yourself. I remember one designer two years ago, I think she literally graduated with an undergraduate degree in, in psychology on a Friday and started our program on a Monday. So she was part of a summer cohort that just was able to 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 get right. And we had some undergrads who were like taking this as part of a, a, their summer between their junior and senior year or whatever, but she was somebody who had graduated in psychology and started the program. And that broke my heart a little bit to learn that because she was somebody who realized the last four years of her life was building towards something that was not going to be fulfilling for her um and i you know i appreciate the better late than never idea of coming to designation and wanting to pursue ux as a career but man that would have that would have hurt me i think emotionally to be in a situation where my degree that i'd worked so hard to 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 get was not going to be something that was ultimately very fulfilling pay hey, but at least with the psychology that can definitely be applied to
0: UX that is like? very
1: very very true again <laughs> that was one of those you know translatable skills that we found was pretty interesting yeah. um, I did want to address your your original question about um, uh, high school students yeah. coming through the program we've actually had two that have come through the program who skipped college you know they were 18 I think when they came through designation. They knew that college wasn't going to be for them. Um, one came to Chicago from New Jersey, and he lived alone. He came to the city. He was able to live here by himself, and he did really well for the, in the program. He worked for us for about eight months after graduation. He's now at Active Campaign, which is a pretty great you know, email marketing firm. Mm-hmm. The other student was from Chicago, and he lived with his parents while he was doing the program. He did not do well. Um, And he's one of the small handful. We probably have 18 or 20 out of the almost 400 that we've graduated who we've never heard from again after graduation Hmm. And no, that makes sense. Yeah, so I think it has a lot to do with emotional maturity Um, High school does not prepare you for ambiguity It teaches you that there's a right answer for everything and you need to learn that answer and give it upon request so that first graduate came from years of coding and design work on his own, and he was really prepared to learn from the people around him. These people were in their 20s, and their 30s, whoever they were in, their, in his cohort. The second had some of those hard skills of design figured out, but he had never really worked with clients before. He'd never presented his work to a creative director. He'd never been part of a team and had to make decisions on a team. So he may have been prepared for design, but we found that he was totally unprepared for being a designer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we saw those two uh, designers in the program as being really useful experiments. And when we get those applications from uh, people who are pre-college, we have to probe a lot deeper to see whether they understand what this experience really entails. I think the other side of that is the very slow diversification of post-high school education opportunities for parents. You know, parents don't, Really like normally they don't really like the idea of their child skipping college or taking a gap year. I think those things are still pretty rare, but they have to come from uh, a, tr- a trust that this child is capable of excelling in a non-college environment, and that's a whole other conversation. I I don't think I'm yeah. I'm the right person <laughs> to talk about that. We could go on for days about on that topic. Yep, <laughs>
0: I'm one of them because I tried. I tried community college at the age of 18 and it did not go very well. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I wasn't ready for college until about my mid to late 20s. (laughs) So yeah, I'm all for taking time off. Um, One term, before I ask the next, uh, before I get back on track, you, you mentioned the term full stack designer. Mm -hmm. I've never really, I've personally never used it and I'm not, and I haven't even really heard it up until about maybe the past couple of weeks used a couple of times.
1: Mm-hmm. So what is a full stack designer? That term has a, has some different definitions depending on who you ask. I think the original idea for that was doing everything. The original concept behind the word full stack designer was doing everything up to backend coding. Mm-hmm. So you would understand UX research conduct all the interviews and do the research yourself. You would move into wireframes. You would be able to convert those wireframes to high-fidelity screens and then code those screens on the front end. So be able to really understand how the research feeds into the design, feeds into the coding, and then if that requires any, any back-end work, that that is then handed off to a back-end there, there are full-stack developers who are able to do everything from the front end uh, of HTML, CSS, JavaScript, all the way to those really deep, you know, de- database, uh, really deep uh, programs and applications that are out there for for dev. So that was the I think the original concept was UX, UI, and front end dev. And I think we've seen that there is a greater need for designers who know UX and UI together. And maybe not necessarily are able to practice it, but are able to speak it. Um, I think we see that with UX designers. We, We want to produce UX designers who understand how their work gets handed off to a UI designer. We want them to understand how UI works and the principles of UI, but not necessarily have to get into developing style guides or doing anything that's where there's some high fidelity design work because they're not expected to know that but they're expected to understand some of the principles behind it. And we see the same for UI. We want UI designers to be able to understand. We actually do a workshop with them on day two of the in-person phase where they have their some work handed off to them and some UX work, some wireframes handed off to them. And they're able to know very quickly how and understand how to 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 work with those files to be able to convert them to to UI um, and be able to produce high fidelity screens. So we don't want them necessarily practicing UX, but we want them aware of it. And that I think is what how we define more of a full stack designer today, which is understanding how your work translates before you get it and after you get it. Um, and and so there's a little bit of fluidity there, I think, again, depending on who you ask, but that's how we tend to define it ourselves.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. uh, my next question is, and again, like this this is, uh, anyway, a common concern I hear about boot camps that teach UI from those hiring UI designers is how can students develop the same level of a visual design skill that a student would get at a four-year university, and they also use the same argument um, about two-year community colleges, saying mm. that there's a noticeable difference in in the uh, quality of the portfolio. So I guess does the compressed schedule? Um, I actually sat down and did like the math. <laughs> mm. So 900 hours over 18 weeks. You know, at that's that's a generalization of the of the boot camps, you know, the more common ones, and then, like, whereas at a four-year university, you've got fourteen to 1,600 hours over four years. Mm -hmm. So do you think the compressed times lead to UI generalists who don't have a sense of where they might want to specialize or a strong enough portfolio?
1: So this is something we we frequently debate internally on staff. Um, One of the great things about having a curriculum like ours is that it's iterative and so we are producing a new version of our curriculum with every cohort we're now on the 24th cohort mm-hmm. in, in our in-person phase we're doing the 25th and 26th uh, cohorts in our virtual phases right now so we've had 26 different iterations of our curriculum so we're able to review it very thoroughly and make changes um, that we're able to implement with the next cohort so very very quickly One of the biggest changes, we've done a lot of big changes over the course of, of, you know, the three years and one week that we've been around so far. One of the biggest was converting from a generalist curriculum to a specialist one. So we used to use that word major. We used to say you had a UX major, UI major. And we used to allow designers to major in one and minor in the other. And at the time, we also offered front-end dev as a third track. And so you could even, you could theoretically do UX for your immersion phase project, UI for your first client project, and a dev project as your second client project. And when it came time for uh, people to start working on their portfolios and putting together the stories of their time here. We found that a lot of those designers had pretty weak portfolios. They had maybe two projects in UX and one in UI. There might've been some, you know, noodling in front end dev thrown in there. They were displaying skill, but not mastery. And when we pulled a lot of our hiring partners, including creative recruiters, They all came back and said, companies today don't want generalists. They want specialists who have mastery. And they didn't want designers who were also coders. They wanted designers, like I said, who knew how to speak code but would be really exceptional in design. So that's when we removed dev as a potential track. We eventually removed supplemental workshops on dev from it also because we wanted people to really stay focused on UX or UI. Uh, a long time ago, I taught at UNC Chapel Hill for a semester,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they offered only five graphic design courses that a student could take. And that was within the journalism school, which I always found to be a very <laughs> odd you know, combination there. Yeah. So all these people in my class, 14 or 15 of them, had started out as journalism majors and ended up really excited by this concentration in graphic design. So, but again, there were only up to five courses you could take, and you could only really do that as a junior or senior. It turned out that that semester that I taught was the last semester that they offered any graphic design course. They closed all of them and said, you know, not only is, is it a poor, you know, poorer and poorer turnout for uh, registration in these courses, but they said, if you really want a good design education, go to a design school instead, go down the street to, um, uh, NC State University, go to one of the other, you know, places that's in North Carolina. And that's kind of what we did with dev. We said there are many, many dev-focused boot camps out there. And actually there are a lot more dev boot camps than there are UX boot camps and way more than UI boot camps. We were one of the only UI boot camps for a long time. Um, So we encourage applicants who want to go into dev to explore those boot camps instead and say, you need an immersion into dev. This is not the place for that. You you should go somewhere else if you want an immersion into UX or UI. That's you know we encourage you to come here and, and we're going to be the the best possible experience for that. But it's not going to be the same as if you want Dev as part of that. Sometimes there's a little more specialization within UX or UI among our designers. Some of them will be really focused on research or content strategy or interaction design. But usually there's enough within that larger work in UX or UI, the experiences you have among the projects that you work on, especially in the scope of the immersion phase mock project or client phase projects.
0: Um, how much downtime do you have between cohorts so you can just revamp things and, you know, put a, hit a reset button?
1: Sometimes that is only a weekend. <laughs> wow! So we will actually, this is what happened uh, last week. Two Fridays ago, we had graduation for uh, our 23rd cohort, and then the 24th cohort started the in-person phase on Monday. So, graduation on Friday, in-person started on Monday, so we did a lot of, you know, work to make sure that they were prepared. Other times, there's a week or two, depending on the schedule of, you know, we'll take a week off, sometimes between phases, or we'll give them a week to prepare to move to Chicago, for example, because we have a lot of students, I'm sorry, we have a lot of designers mm-hmm. who come from outside Chicago, sometimes internationally, so they need some time to get settled here. We'll take time off for holidays, you know, two weeks off at uh, over Christmas and New Year's to make sure that, um, you know, people aren't, you know, they're able to get some time with family or do whatever they need. So it can be, it's only really a couple weeks, but we always generally have mm-hmm. three to four cohorts running at different phases at any given time. Okay,
0: no, but that's I mean, when you're talking about it on like a on a daily basis, that's I mean one week doesn't sound like a lot, but that's seven days to actually iterate is a lot. <laughs> when yeah, you stop and think about it. Yeah. Um, so this is one thing, and this is personal to me because I've never heard anybody say anything about this. Um, but I personally have trouble understanding what kind of a portfolio a student would leave a bootcamp with. And I'm going to say UI, a UI specific one. Sure. Um, students who attend a four year university will leave with like eight to 10, eight to 12 quality pieces. But then when I look at, you know, student websites and portfolios from those who attended uh, bootcamps, I see one project, maybe two at most. And again, this is me personally is like, I can't imagine how that would be enough work to, you know, convince a, an employer to, you know, kind of even bring you in for an interview. So am I am I just looking at the wrong portfolios or um, are they saving like, you know, hiding work for in-person interviews or mm-hmm. I just don't understand the whole thing?
1: I that's a a great question. Um, I was at the Dallas. Um, Society of Visual Communications mm-hmm. National Student Student Show and Conference a couple yep. weeks ago, and I took part in the portfolio review because it's a reviewing portfolios is sort of a personal passion of mine. I've you know done hundreds in my career, and I just love doing it. Mm-hmm. And I probably reviewed twelve or thirteen over the course of that portfolio review. And literally every student who was about to graduate, they were all um, uh, seniors who had about you know a month and a half or so left in their college career came up to me with a booklet with a portfolio that was either wire bound or mm-hmm. stitched or worse. It was a like a three ring binder. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these books, uh, every piece in that book was about three or four photos of a particular piece photographed at you know what you would consider dynamic angles mm-hmm. with a paragraph of text explaining the project. And, I was so dismayed when I read that, when I saw those, first of all, because that's the same as what portfolios looked like, you know, 15, 17 years ago when I was coming out of undergrad. Um, and I told every single one of them that there was so much that was missing there, so much context for me as somebody who would never met them before, never seen this work before and all the things that they learned and what where they failed at and what surprised them over the course of that project, all those things mattered in the story of their work. So one of the, the really important things that we've done at designation, this is something that I've, I've put a lot of work into um, because I run our career phase and I'm the one who teaches all of the portfolios and case study stuff, is that these are not portfolio pieces, these are case studies. They must yeah. be case studies. And I don't know what other boot camps do, but at designation, um, I really drill it into designers that the purpose of their case studies is not to show work. It's to show what they learned and how they learned it. So it's less of a reflection of the deliverable and more a reflection of the process. So I tell them, think of your portfolio as explaining your growth from point one to point 100. Your first case study, which is four weeks of your life, uh, covers points one to 40. And your second case study, which is maybe your first client project, is points 41 to 70. And your third, which is your second uh, client project, is points 71 to 100. Anyone who reads your portfolio who sees these case studies needs to be able to see your growth from zero to designer all the way through your portfolio. So chronologically later case studies must show the things you incorporated, uh, must in- incorporate the things you learned in earlier projects. So they. They are supposed to look and read cleaner. They are more fluid. Uh, they they show more expertise. Maybe they're shorter because you have figured out how to write a case study in a shorter amount of time and using less text. And at the end of every case study, you always need to discuss where the project can go after your time on that project. So being objective about the work you did and knowing that it can still be improved. And then also what you learned as a designer while working on it. And that has to include, again, those things of of where did you fail? Where did you struggle? Where did you pivot? What did you, what gave you joy in this project? And that's a real challenge because so many of the people who come through the program are used to seeing, you know, only those four photos and one paragraph about, you know, showing a project in their portfolio. A huge, huge pet peeve of mine that I could just rant uh, with so many curse words is when people... In the program, Google, the phrase UX portfolio or UI (laughs) portfolio, and they see that same thing. They see these these designers who've been around for 12, 15 years, and all they show is some wireframes in a UX portfolio. They'll show a bunch of screens in a UI portfolio. They'll have that single paragraph that describes that work, or maybe they won't even have that paragraph at all. And I I hate having to tell them that those designers have probably less, much less to prove because they've been in the business for years and years. They have a resume that's long and storied. They have awards they've won. They know people who can vouch for the quality of their work and their process. But our designers at designation have everything to prove because they're brand new designers. They, they don't know anybody yet. They, they only have a few of us who can talk about their skills. So they need to show all those things in their portfolio, the things that they've learned and how they grew. Yeah. I think I think it's fair to say that numbers wise, obviously we just can't keep up with a university produced portfolio. I think it, it is hard to see depth of knowledge in three case studies. Um, we certainly see uh, graduates do pro bono work or freelance work after graduation. They add those to the portfolio. Maybe they'll do like a daily UI challenge. Mm-hmm. Those are really, really popular, especially for the UX graduates to do those. And so they wanna supplement their portfolio. Um, but I, I have a lot of confidence that if they only have three case studies in their portfolio, those case studies are going to do some of the best work in the design industry um, as a whole at showing growth as a designer. And those case studies have to live on their own in front of a hiring manager. They, the, the hiring manager has to be able to show what that designer knows and how they learned it Experience. And I believe that ultimately that's much more valuable to a hiring manager than pure design talent. Yeah.
0: Um, before I ask the next question, I, I have to go off a little bit on the portfolio rant. <laughs> sure. Because um, there's a Facebook group for design faculty, and, and somebody asked, you know, are, are you still doing print portfolios or are you going to digital? And I was reading the, com- the comments. And a lot of them, again, were like, "Yeah, we do a print portfolio, but the print portfolio they're producing is like you said. It's maybe it's a 13 by 19 sheet that is a printout of a collage of the work." Mm-hmm. And I'm just, for the life of me, how is that different than showing a digital th- a digital portfolio on a on a tablet or a laptop. It's the same thing. Yeah. So it's, so it's not like it's a print portfolio where they're like literally like they build these like little wells into this like nice clamshell portfolio where you can take out the brochure, hold it, you know, feel it. You can like flip through the catalog that you made. You can physically interact with it. It's just photographs of work. So why, <laughs> why yeah. would you, why do you need to print that out and put it in a binder?
1: Yeah. And I'm somebody who had, makes no terrible, sense. I had terrible craft when yeah. I was an undergrad. And and so all of my, um, my pieces, you know, smelled like rubber cement because I wasn't doing, you know, and the corners were rough and all these things that that was, quote, unquote, my best uh, efforts at the time. And it's sorely lacking even compared to today. I'm curious. Do you think that um, – do you see – or hear from your students and from other, uh, maybe other faculty, that there is a stigma around using portfolio sites like Squarespace, for example, or WordPress? Uh, you no. Know, well,
0: I don't think so. I don't think there's a stigma. I mm-hmm. will say I'm not a supporter of Squarespace because they don't, they're kind of like the Uber <laughs> in their business practices of those things. Yeah. But um, as far as like Behance or any of the like, you know, like self-built portfolios, um, it depends what job you're shooting for. I mean, if you're, if you're specifically saying I'm just a UI graphic designer, then you're not expected to be able to code. Yeah, uh, You're not expected, you know, to do those kind of things. So that's a perfectly appropriate delivery vehicle. If it's, if, you know, if it's like well put together, yeah. um, if you're like, you know, a custom, like, you know, if you tweak the square space or you tweak the, um, the WordPress or on Behance or Dribble, I mean, it, you know, there's nothing to tweak. So mm-hmm. I think it just all depends on the feedback that I've gotten. I'm going to go from employers is as long as whatever you're showing fits the job you're looking for, they don't care yeah so being able to hand code it certainly helps it just shows that you at least understand the medium of the web so does that answer your question yeah Yeah,
1: i i I just i'm very curious about that because we um i see a lot of designers coming in and having a little bit of trepidation about having a portfolio that's an off-the-shelf you know a kit that they can use like squarespace like wordpress Weebly, Wix, Webflow, I mean there are so many out there You know, that very are intentionally very easy to use. And Mm -hmm. I I tell them, you know, there's nothing to worry about. Like you said, if you're not expected to code in your job, you will not need to put, you know, hand code a website. You do not need to necessarily know HTML. There are certainly sites out there that can be improved with a little bit of HTML and CSS knowledge. And that's great to be able to, to get some of that on your own because it'll make you a stronger designer. But I do see some of those, some of that fear about will people look down on me if, well, employers look down on me if I use Squarespace instead of hand code my site? And I tell them no, but I think there's, there's that, that will always remain a little bit, um, because yeah. they see, you know, uh, online stores, for example, that are set up in Squarespace or blogs that are set up in WordPress and, And those are fundamentally different things than what we expect our designers to do in a portfolio. But they're they are worried that their portfolio is going to have to fit that mold instead of being able to let it do what they really want it to do.
0: Um, the minute you said the word wick, (laughs) wicks, that triggered a a conversation that on a podcast that I had an earlier episode with Jay Finelli of Mm. Cotton Bureau. Um they were hiring a senior level um designer that was expected to be able to produce high fidelity prototypes mm. so how you got that high fidelity whether it's through clickable whether it's through bootstrap whether it's like coding it yourself is irrelevant they just wanted to be able to get the so anyway so i was so i said like what were some of the biggest problems that you saw when um People were applying and he, he said people using mm. Wix and he didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a website builders. It was the website builder that they picked. So if you're going to use a website builder, if you're using Squarespace, I mean, Squarespace, WordPress are like industry standard when in the design mm. realm. Wix Mm -hmm. isn't (laughs) so there's like a level to these things so he was like if somebody gave me a portfolio that was in Squarespace or um, WordPress that showed them you know adjusting it for themselves you know not just like blanketly just using the standard template but you know adjusting things. Within it, he's like that's perfectly that was perfectly acceptable for a f- what I would consider a fairly high level yeah. design job, but that's one. Yeah, person. no, I think
1: um, you know I I show probably twelve or thirteen various platforms for every cohort when when I talk about the options that you have for setting up a portfolio, and there are definitely several of them that uh, are not built for designers; they're built for the everyday person. And so, you know, Wix is one of those Mm -hmm. that they advertise on the subway here in Chicago and they want anybody, all of our, all of our mothers Mm -hmm. to be able to set up portfolio sites or any type of site on there, whatever they want. And that, and that means, you know, that's the trade off. It can be easy to use, but you may lose a lot of the special touches that make it worth having a, a design portfolio be really useful on that platform.
0: That's all we have time for today on Episode 46, Part 1 of Design Edu Today. I want to thank today's guest, Mike Josie, for being so generous with his time. I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design Edu Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and the CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. I also want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you like this podcast, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes store and share it with your colleagues and friends. To discover more about the Design Edu Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with new show releases, you can follow us at Twitter at DesignEDU Today, like the Facebook page, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. Finally, if you'd like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback to help improve the show, contact me through Twitter or the show's email address at hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to DesignEDU Today.